So something interesting happened today. Yeah, explain this to me. I, I you, you sent me a very interesting text message this morning. And also, I would like to note, you did not pick up on my happiness this morning. You who always give me grief for not saying good morning. And today I said good morning with an exclamation point, no less. And you were just like, whatever. Here's my weird text message. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So why, why were we? Why were we? Why were we unusually cheery on a Wednesday morning? Because my book has an official title. <sighs> That's right. And what's the title? I don't know. What is the title? Zines and libraries purchasing process. I don't know. It's something boring. No, and no, no. Not... I said it was like purchasing, processing, and managing, or ordering. You know, yeah, how something to... like that. <laughs> it's the most boring title in the whole world. See, I can't even remember it, but. That does mean it's an official project that has been accepted. I mean, I knew it was accepted for publication, but now we have a project title. So oh, that's freaking awesome. So it will get published, is what I'm hearing. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. Is we're talking about published into a book that I could go to the library and get? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Or oh. I'll get online and buy. So th well, this we'll is see. library related. This is not witchcraft related. But you know. well, hold on a second now. I mean, like, it, will you make anything from this, or is this purely like a project, like a library project, overheady kind of thing? I will not make money on this, but it, it has been a big project. I got, I, I created the project. I put the project together. I got twelve mm -hmm. other amazing librarians together to write different chapters. I also wrote a chapter. I have edited this project. It will have my name on it. I'm very excited. So. Well, awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So back to the back to the item here at hand. <laughs> uh, so I was going through, uh, like I usually do, perusing through a number of the the social media groups, and somebody came across somebody somebody posted something, and it was uh, a Wednesday herb of the day, and it had to do with capers, and. You know, I'll read this out here. Caper plants are usually found grown wild in the Mediterranean and dry, stony areas similar to those where olives are grown. Capers grow in viny brambles. I love the word brambles. Much like blackberries do in North America. Caparis spinosa, a caper bush, also called Flinders Rose, is a perennial plant that bears rounded, fleshy leaves and large white to pinkish white flowers. Plant is best known for its edible flower buds, used as a seasoning and the fruit, both of which are usually consumed pickled. See, here's the thing, right? I had no idea what capers were used for. And I consider my, I mean, I've done a lot of cooking in the past. I've been kind of a, a, a short order cook, you know, but I've always, I always thought capers were like, were like peppers. I, I thought they were like wet peppers, like wet. See, round I did know this. I did know this because I too had this question at one point, and I looked it up, and it so disturbed me somehow that I spent a lot of time randomly thinking about capers, which is probably really weird because, well, it just is. But they're really delicious. I really like capers, but the black the, the fact that they are flower buds love that disturbed me. Oh, it disturbs that, me. I mean, I love it, but it disturbs. I don't know. It's so weird because I don't know. It's something about how they're pickled and like, or brined or dried. Like they're savory. You know, I think of a flower bud is going to be like sweet and like fruity, maybe, and they're not. I don't, and they're th delicious. I don't think any more maybe than a salad with with bits of 
of a given flower sprinkled amongst it. But I get you. I mean, I understand. Like, I, I see where you're coming from. That's that weird conflict. It would be like it would be like eating savory ice cream. It's it's a conflict of interests in the mind. I would imagine. Yes. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, okay. I think that's a good way to put it. Well, it went on and the list so, here. Go ahead and say again. No, so so yes. Every now and then, I I have random thoughts about the strangeness of capers. Welcome to the weird mind of Cassandra. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it goes on. To list the family, higher classification, scientific name. I love this. I, I love it when somebody actually goes and and puts a little bit of effort, even if we're copying and pasting, puts a little bit of effort to putting this this sort of thing in. It, it details in health, capers contain a variety of antioxidants, which play an important role in limiting oxidative stress, it may even help to reduce the risk of some kinds of cancer. And of course, the you know, as with always, consult your physician or pharmacy before sucking down a shitload of capers, because just because, right? <clears throat> but the, the thing that stuck out here was was amongst all of this was in magic, it is used for potency, love, and lust. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, you know, when I see this sort of thing happen, it kills me inside because you don't know why. There's no rhyme or reason. If I just came up to you and I handed you a piece of paper... And on that piece of paper was a name. And you didn't know who it was. It would mean nothing to you. I mean, it would be a name. You could probably read the name. You might know people named by those names. But without context, without background, without lore, without understanding potentially how your mind is going to respond to this symbol, it, it's going to do nothing for you. I'd say like one of the biggest problems in witchcraft today is the fact that you've got a shitload of books on the market. All of them have a crap ton of associations, and they don't tell you why. And it's, it's like coming to a crossroad and with a signs pointed in every direction telling you the name of cities. And you're at a crossroad with no roads connecting to it. That's how useless that is to me. You know, how do I how do we get there? How do I get there? That sign says this city is pointing in that direction. How do we get there? Right? There is no road. This is the same kind of situation. So my brain started twitching, and I and I asked the person, why? <laughs> and to which she came back and she said, yeah, I know, right? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think when you get into things like associations, you can read all the books. You can read all the explanations. You can read the folklore. You can read the traditions. You can read the stories. And, you know, there's some things that are really obvious and easy to connect, right? But then there are mm -hmm. other things that are very, I don't know, culturally based, locally based, family sure. based, personal experience based. And right. A and book, that, a book you shouldn't can tell assume you, the symbols from that then. Like you shouldn't, again, shouldn't take its word for it because for all we know, these three words, potency, love, and lust, for all we know, that has to that came over from the Middle East. And culturally speaking, those words might have a significantly different meaning or set of symbols. You know, you, you might not necessarily respond to it in the same way. It's a bit like, like you said, eating them and having this weird conflict in the brain of knowing that they're flower buds and that they're savory. And in magic, if the brain's kind of like, I don't, if I don't get it, if our magical mind's kind of like, no, it's just not going to accept it. It's just going to go, I'm sorry, I need more convincing. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be eating capers anytime soon going, 
But you said they're delicious. They are delicious, but I'm also not going to associate them with like lust or love, you know, because those are not my, well, because of this conversation, I might, it might be lurking in the back of my head. And someday some poor lover of mine may get some weird dish with capers in it where I, I don't even know where I'm trying to like lure them off into my bed he might be like sprinkling capers down his arm <laughs> like salt bay right right and it's gonna be your fault this whole situation you're gonna be like it's a be sign your fault. it will you know actually this is this is how this is gonna work out now some like person is gonna appear with capers and i'm gonna be like that's the love of my life right there i know because we did an episode on them and they mean love and passion and potency but i think it you know it, it goes even beyond all of that because you know you can read a book with associations tied in and i mean there's something to be said for having the historic the mythic the the, the line of storytelling behind mm-hmm. it you know diana is the goddess of the hunt she's often associated with dogs she's also associated with the moon dogs and the moon are tied in together so like you know there are those sorts of associations but I mean, there's a story behind those, though, right? They're included a, in those stories. There's a story behind it. There's a whole mythology behind it. There's so many cultural references behind it. So, yeah, you can say this is why I associate those things. But at the same time, you might say, well, I associate dogs with something from my own experience, right? Sure. And so if I'm going to be doing magic associated with dogs, mm-hmm. maybe that's where I'm pulling. And I think when you start doing magic, and you start thinking magically, you have to really figure out for yourself what things are associated with and what they represent to you. And so, sure, you may say, dogs, Diana, the moon, there we go, very easy. But then someone else might say, well, that's not my background. This is my background, and the dog's associated with the sun, right? Right. Right. (laughs) And so those two people are going to treat the symbolism of dogs very differently. And I think this is a good example of that. We have no idea what the story behind this is, and maybe right. it does come from some, you know, specific historical mythological origin. We don't know it. <laughs> right. Well, and and I think I think I think there are some some commonly understood base symbols, right? When you mention dogs, like it, 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 depending on where you are, now that now that dogs to a, to a greater less you know greater degree have been have been. Um, domesticated they're domesticated worldwide and the kinds of relationships that you have with domesticated dogs has has a a characterization to it that's relatable that's understandable that transcends society i think because the dogs themselves have personalities and characteristics that you can say are kind of archetypical right is every dog the same no is every breed the same no but if you if you come back up a certain level and you go well what's the difference between cat and cats and dogs well, as a as a as an archetype, you can say, well, dogs want to be your buddy. They're excited to see you when you come home. You know, they they want to get out and play with you. They consider you one of the pack, right? Cats kind of consider you like a roommate, and depending on the day, they might like you a little bit more or a little bit less. And you you know, you might go in, give them a high five, and other days they just want to be alone. It, you can sit back and say that these sort of archetypical personalities or symbols that are associated with a dog versus a cat. And that I believe that transcends uh, cultures, Uh, although there might be some slight cultural difference. I'd say where there might be a strong personal difference would be like if you were attacked by a dog as a kid and you have a a phobia of dogs. These are also 
like really basic symbols, right? Or, you know, regular normal things. So when you start breaking it down into something like a caper, like that's an entirely different like line of thinking. Caper is not a dog. It is not a dog. It requires more info, right? It requires context. Like if, if I was to, if I was to give you the name of an author and you hadn't read any of that author's books, that author has no value in your life. They've not touched you. They've not affected you. But if you read an author's book and you love it, you've spent hours with the author. You've been going through that author's mind. They've guided you through a, a journey, a story that has affected you, hopefully emotionally, maybe maybe in a thought-provoking sort of way. But you still now have this sort of, well, albeit one way, you have a relationship built. You've, you've now invested in it. I think that that's the same with like the name on a piece of paper that I told you about. If I just handed you the name on a piece of paper and you didn't know who it was, it would mean nothing. But if I said that this is Elon Musk's signature, now, depending on your personal opinion of the kinds of stuff he does and the kind of person that he is, that might be an awesome autograph to have. You might, you know, follow him. You might be invested in his stuff. You might be, you might have, you might have purchased his not a flamethrower flamethrower, you know, it, it, it may if you may have one of his car, may own one of his cars, like it may directly affect your life or you may be totally against it. But Elon Musk, as a signature on a piece of paper, if you have a relationship with it, you associate certain symbols that orbit that person. But back to capers, because capers, when I look at capers, I, I have... The only experience I have is picking them off of whatever food somebody threw them on. That's my relationship with capers. And until today, I didn't have any like connection. So I asked why. And as I, I researched a little bit further, because I don't just like asking why, that's kind of a, a jerky assholey kind of thing to do. I decided to dive into it. And and sure enough, you know, capers have a just an absolute ton of polyphenols. Now, granted, the polyphenols is a, is a wide, rather broad topic, it seems. As I dived into it, this is like over 8,000 different aspects or types of polyphenols. But, you know, when we look at it, uh, when, we, when we look at the kind of polyphenols that are within capers, it seems to deal very much with cardiovascular health, the improvement of your, your cardiovascular system, so potentially the improvement of blood through your system. As always, the the binding of free radicals, everything everything good kills free radicals or fights them, I guess, and uh, also for heart disease. But strangely enough, too much of it, too much of it can actually lend towards heart disease, can potentially hurt you in a cardiovascular sense. So initially I thought, well, maybe we just knew that. Maybe eating them made our hearts beat a little bit faster, you know, made us subconsciously think that we were having feelings for somebody while eating them, right? And I'm not 100% sure on this, but this is kind of the path we go down on some of these things. So it's funny, as as you've been talking, I actually Googled the mythology of capers. Uh-huh. And apparently they're very big in Greek cooking, which I, I mm-hmm. didn't know. But then I found this interesting description from the Jewish virtual library. And the caper, the shrub Caparis spinosa, which grows wild in Israel and rocky places, as well as in old stone walls, including the Western Wall. The personal name, personal name Zalaf, and I apologize if I mispronounced that correctly, occurs in the Bible. The caper's fruit 
The aviona is mentioned in Ecclesiastes as a symbol of shortness of man's life because very soon after it blossoms, the fruit scatters its seeds and the plant withers. Right. And I and I read about this as well, because that, that kind of led me along the path away from the health concept, which which may actually still we can wrap back to that a little bit later. But but there was a story, there's like a passage of some sort that references capers, but the idea being here that that the the sort of blooming that the the when it blooms, it has this sort of very long white hairs that come out of it that Sounds kind of really represent. <laughs> well, no, it's beautiful. Look up a picture. They're okay. gorgeous. They're beautiful flowers, uh, but they have this sort of tuft of white, you know, that that kind of come out the end, and that that's compared to like a, the aging hair, like graying hair, if you will. That once you've bloomed, you're soon basically to die, and that you will move into an age of, of sort of you know, white hair and impotence, if you will. <clears throat> Interesting. I am looking up pictures and they are very beautiful and not what I expected at all, quite honestly. That's what you eat when you eat capers. You've <sighs> stunted. It's blossoming. I feel like but a really here's the thing that I found fascinating. Right so when we talk about potency and love and lust, what I, I, I feel weird for for not having known this but i ran into something called a doctrine of signatures have you heard of this i feel like i have but i cannot tell you anything about it at the moment like it's tugging at the back of my my memory and i don't know why so what is it so it's it's this idea that this concept that dates back to about the 1400s and the idea is is that god left signatures on plants right that when we have health issues, all we need to do is look around and find a plant that has fruit or maybe leaves or something that bears the signature of the organ that's in question or that has a problem. And that consuming that is the medicine for what ails you for that organ or issue. That, yeah, that's very big in medieval writing and medieval theo I never uh, heard theology. Of this. And that's it why it took capers to like it. wind me down the path of finding <laughs> this, and I feel stupid because you know I I was Catholic growing up, like I should have known this as a witch for thirty years. Like this is painfully obvious. We know that this is a part of how we transmutate that symbolism from a plant into a magical working. You know, we know that you know when you when you pull the roots out of a plant and it, it looks like a, a person with their little legs crossed. Right. Or, or it has like a little penis on it. You go, oh, that's the male version of that. That must be good for, you know, penis stuff. We know this. We've seen this a lot. I just didn't know there was a name to it. So it's just it's cool what these little paths kind of lead you down. But of course, the problem is that it's not true. Like you can use these sorts of things in magical workings because symbolically they're helpful. Right. You can look at it and go, well, that looks like a, a couple of testicles right there. And then you can go, ah, testicles. Cool. Well, if I want something that's symbolic of testicles, then I'll just go over to this plant, pull some, you know, testicle berries off of it and then incorporate it into my magic. And symbolically, my brain goes, ah, I get it. OK, we're talking about balls. I have to say, though, that every time I have discussed this in the past, at least mm -hmm. in the literary context, of course, um, not so much in the magical context, but in the literary literary context, the the doctrine of signatures, it, like it always really disappoints me 
that these things are not actually like it's not actually true like i really want this stuff you know like like the avocado is totally tied into testicles and i like i'm like yes i wanted to cure <laughs> testicle okay yeah, we're... some wavels for you <laughs> right, right right but there there are a lot of these out there you know things that are that look like eyes things that look like hearts you know and i like i want it to to actually and it's it, the fact that it isn't always like disappoints me like I, i'm always sad when I remember that these things are not true. But I think they were on to something. So I'll read day. out the bit. The, what was it? Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. 12.5. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along the... Dis- along. <laughs> when the grasshopper drags himself along, a comma would have been helpful here. <laughs> and desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets, which is a, I, I guess, in, in some ways, I don't know if it's in reference per se or if it if it specifies capers directly in a sense. But so the idea here was that a capers represents men's virility. And in fact, my reference to a handful of, you know, testicles is actually what the seed pods or the no, not seed pods, the the blossom pods look like. That's what they relate them to. Well, actually, apparently it's because they look like ovaries, which, of course, men will fertilize. That's weird. So I'm looking at something different that says they look like testicles. Now, huh. don't get me wrong. Like, yeah, you could look at these and go, yeah, kind of look like ovaries, too. And it wouldn't surprise me if somebody interpreted it that way as well, given the kind of the how they look. But see, um, here's a great example of how yeah. we're both looking at very similar sources with two, like, almost similar, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, that just proves the point, right? right. <laughs> the associations here. So it reads here that the flowers of the caper are large and showy and produce a berry-like fruit. It has a shape somewhat resembling a human testes. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of depends on where you're coming from, or maybe even how the lore is sort of wrapped around that sort of thing. And you look at it, and you go, well, there it is. So, but this again falls to kind of the issue there, is that if you're doing magic and you want the symbolism to... to move in your mind, right? If you want to manipulate your magical mind and you want to use symbols that are specific to love and lust and, and virility, uh, you might want to use something like this. But if you didn't know that, that the lore led up to it being a resemblance to testes, right? that in my opinion would change how you might use these in a in a ritual how you might use these in a spell right it it you wouldn't want to use a symbol that's specific to female virility femininity and potentially female lust by saying hey yeah let's throw some things that look like male nuts into the mix because yeah why not well you know right? why... and not and not knowing the background behind that is just kind of blindly going forth and saying that'll work. And in this case, maybe not knowing might be more beneficial than otherwise, but this is the reasoning. You know, when I, when I start teaching magic and I tar- start teaching spellcrafting 
to students. You know, you always have those students who come to you with this this very well-versed knowledge of mythology and folklore, right? And then mm-hmm. you have the students who come to you with really none, none of it. Or you have students from different backgrounds, uh, from different cultures, you know. And so when you start talking about these things and you start talking about putting something together, I always really emphasize the need to use things that make sense to you. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if, you know, say, you know, I have a student who doesn't know the story of Diana and the moon and the dogs, right? It doesn't matter that they don't know that if, you know, what they're using in this spell resonates with them even if, if it might have that association. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if their intent is entirely different. What matters is how they associate it and how you are using it to focus, right? You know, we talk about tools all the time as a way to focus your energy and your intent. This is the same type of thing. Sure. It's important that your associations with this symbol or item or tool or whatever it is makes sense to you and your intent in that spell crafting. I agree. I, I agree. Cause you know, but I think, I think a big part of it is, is knowing how you interpret things well, and understanding how it affects you. That's the conversation though. Right. Yeah. Like, because I think, I think a lot of people just go in there and go, well, I'm going to do this spell that's supposed to bring peace. And I really like the color red and I think color red brings peace to me. It doesn't. From a biological perspective, you're not you're not going to have a conscious understanding of the kind of effects it has on you. It's not going to bring you peace. But then uh, that's because the we, conversation, we, we right? Yeah, sure, sure. That's, it's the that's conversation, the conversation yeah. of why 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 do you associate this color with peace, and then seeing if they can actually respond to why they think that's a peaceful color, right? Because, you know, if they can make a solid, you know, like this is why I think red is peaceful to me. Like this is like, I I can sit here and give you a whole, you know, essay on the color red as a peaceful color. Then I would Mm -hmm. say, go for it. You know, (laughs) if if you can dig into it like that, you know, you may disagree and I may disagree with that, but at the end of the day, they're the one doing the spell and that's what's important. Well, and I agree, but and again, it comes down to a degree of understanding—not just how it you interpret it, but how you biologically interpret it. Because the me interpreting is all front; it's all front. It's not back; it's all front. How am I interpreting? I'm thinking about it. I'm rationalizing it. Is what I'm doing. Well, but and the usually, fact of the matter is, is we respond as biological creatures, as animals. We respond to colors very specifically. You know, you can measure it. You know, being in a room of red, you know, causes you to sweat more. I I think we're we're getting down a whole different conversational path because I think to backtrack a little bit, usually what happens in this scenario is someone will say to me, I think red is the color of peace because I read it once in a book. And there is no deeper thought to it, right? And I think that's the problem with... Or because it's my favorite color. Or it's because it's my favorite color. Like, they can't sit there and write you a whole essay about why the color red is a peaceful color. They're like, well, I read it in a book once. And then I'm like, well, let's let's talk through this a little bit more. (laughs) Let's talk about other references. Let's talk about our own experiences in the world around us. You know, how do we experience the color red? Which, you know, I think is then 
that conversation. But usually in my experience, when, when you have those conversations, it's I read it in a book once. Right. And if right. not, I, I read it in a book 10 times or 20 times. It's I, I read it in a book once. And we didn't think about it. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's like someone else told me this is what this means. And so that's what I've gone with, even though like none of like if you really think about the color red, that does not make sense. You know, so. um, Well, I I mean, we can like quite literally we can quite literally measure it in you. We can quite literally see that your pulse will heighten, that your adrenaline will kick in, that you will respond in certain ways, that you will become more agitated in a red room. There are studies. You know, you will get hotter with no discernible change in atmosphere and in temperature of the room that you're in, that that we have a, a biological response. But that said, there are social overrides. Case in point, I was talking to somebody last week who said that her father was in Vietnam and he had to wear these these green overalls. I don't know. I don't know if he was mechanic or what the deal was, but that a very specific shade of color is very triggering for him, that he hates that. Now, green comes with its own set of symbolism. It kind of has its own place in a person's circle. It is a color in which we can see the widest range of shades, which is the reason why they use it for night vision goggles. But for him, it's a triggering color. A very specific shade of green is it kind of triggers up post-traumatic stress and memories of that time. So I get that there are social overrides. Like you're right. The, the conversation needs to be had. Why do you, why do you think you respond to this and how are you really responding to it? Because it's not just nature that's using these colors against us. You know, you walk into a, a brush of green and you see a stripe of red. That's not a good sign. If it's an animal, it's very much not a good sign. But the flip of that is, is that we are marketed with these colors symbolically in mind. And it's meant to manipulate us because they're already riding on the backs of of a generalized, a, on a large scale response of how people respond to certain colors. I don't think we can have an episode that goes into colors a whole other time, but I'm just really just falling back to the fact that I think people could even rationalize a really big excuse as to why they think they respond to a certain symbol. But the fact of the matter is, is that they may not. Well, but, they, and, they, I, but and it's a part of self-discovery, right? I also think that, and we've talked about this before, you know, we live in a very monotheistic society and culture. And we, mm-hmm. within those monotheistic traditions, there's very much that here's this one authority figure who is going to tell us what these things are and mean. And so when I have a student that says, well, I read it in a book once. And so clearly oh. that's the answer. I feel like that's someone who still hasn't quite gotten themselves out of that mindset. And, and so, even if you read it in the book, like you could read it in 30 books. They might, 30 books might tell you the same thing. We could open up probably. 30 books about herbs and they could all say that capers are are you know love and lust right and potency potency and without understanding why uh, we would just be taking some for all we know some idiot just said this will sell better if i tell them it'll increase lust and then down the road somebody said lust well lust is just a preface to love and then somebody down the road wrote in a book, well, lust and love, well, surely there's got to be potency involved. And for all we know, we're looking at a grapevine effect of authors 
passing some crap along at face value where the original person was just kind of like, that's going to sell better. Shark fin. It's, it's good for your wang. It's excellent for sexual potency. Oh, got to have that. How about bird nests made of bird spit? <laughs> sexual potency, virility. I think half of that shit is just meant it's just meant to sell stuff. So if you don't know why, you don't know if the the words being used to describe the thing as a magical association is it has has any history, any background, any truth, any symbolism that your brain can latch onto. So I I don't know if I ever told you this story. Um, you like shark fin soup because that's. I, I do That's not. a big no-no. No, I, I don't like shark fin soup. I had a, a student once who asked me when we were going to read the Necronomicon. And I said, we, we won't be because that... Not if we're going to read the ne- Necronomicon. <laughs> when? <laughs> right. When? When is it coming? They really wanted to dive into this and i had to explain to them that this was was not an actual piece of primary source magically speaking and you can't and you can't make fun of people because it you could pick up a number of of books uh, at the bookstore that reference magic and and that line between you know fiction versus nonfiction and lore and and practice today just at a glance is very blurry you might very well consider oh wow that neck of the necronomicon that looks very legit if you didn't know any better i could see it i had a friend down the street that was convinced the necronomicon was a real thing as a kid like his intention was to like make the little icons and symbols out of the certain metals to call forth whatever demons right it's that he was convinced that he could do this. And there are a lot of books that kind of lead and feel in that sort of same way that actually have some legitimate kind of lore and history behind it. Well, and it's funny, you know, as we started this, this discussion out on, I am a, a librarian. I have a master's degree in literature. I very, very highly prize Wait, the written work. Did you, did you get a special degree in librarianism? I did. I have two master's degrees, actually, which just means I am very good at jumping through hoops. I am an academic. I very much treasure books and the written word. But when it comes to witchcraft, I really try to steer people away from books because so much of what's out there, depending on what you're reading, really is crap. <laughs> like, yeah. And there are multiple reasons for that. And I'm not saying that that's, that's true of everything. You know, I tell my students to stick to primary resources. You know, the people who, you know, not, are not necessarily writing about how to do magic, but, you know, go back to Gerald Gardner, go back to the Farers. And even with them, you have to question what they're writing and what they're doing and what their intent is. You know, I really try to direct my students towards mythology and folklore and that side of mm-hmm. it, the history of the occult, you know, not the generic Wicca 101 books. And I'm not saying that they're all terrible. They're not all terrible. Some of them are really good. You're not going to get deep. They're, they're, they're not intended for deep because your 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 general audience that's that's coming into the path, they're new. And, you and, know, one of the things that was so significant about the fairers back in the day is essentially mm-hmm. they were breaking their oaths to write this material down, Right. 
you know is this the bible it's not we're talking about oh yeah well you make you make fun of me what witches do it's called the witch's bible that's what they called it that was the name of their book oh i'm talking about a different title but anyway but it was significant and they were hated for the fact that they were breaking their oaths because you're not supposed to write this stuff down so i think when you approach a lot of you know the the neo-pagan movement the wiccan movement you have mm-hmm. to question the intent of authors who are doing more than that basic 101 stuff or who are promising you that they're showing you the, the depths of witchcraft, right? Because they're not. Like, they just can't. And, like, there are people who will just flat out lie to you or will make generic associations so they don't quite cross that line. But they all get really suspect in a lot of ways. <laughs> It's one of those, you don't know, therefore you must trust me, even if it, even if it is coming across a little sus. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, but you, you know, don't know, so you can't call my bluff. So, ha! Ha! And so, you know, and we've, we've spoken about this before. Like, if you are learning from someone, they should be able to explain to you why. And they should really walk you down the why of the entirety of the thing. <laughs> they should. All right, so let me ask you, has any question of why ever ended up being a you'll learn that down the road like you know that's that's a third degree secret and this is a mystery tradition yeah it's going to be a mystery for a little while longer yes but i think if a student is advanced enough to ask the question they deserve at least the beginning of the answer and i think it's fair to say as a teacher it's like a tease but you as a teacher can say you know in all fairness we are going to get to this. I don't want to talk about it right now. Maybe here's some of the basic reasons. And when you hit that point, you can ask me this question again, and I will give you the full explanation. You know, it's it's not a, well, if you're not going to tell me now, then you're a terrible person or a terrible teacher, and I don't want to learn from you. But they should be able to say to you, this comes along later, and there's a reason for that, and here's why. And when we get to that point, please ask me that question again, and we'll go through it. You know, it's it's you know, it's fair to say you're you're not quite ready to talk about this in this stage of the training. That's your role as teacher. You should be able to say that. But you shouldn't just like say no or you know, like there there is no explanation to this or you know, just because I said so, right? Like those are not acceptable answers. The person you're learning from should be able to explain to you why. <laughs> And, uh, I agree. Even yeah. if it's even if it's just like you said, just beginning it, and I think you'll know the difference uh, because I, the attitude is there, right? If somebody's mm-hmm. trying to hide something, they're trying to withhold something in order to, or they just don't know it. it. They just don't know. Yeah, and I, I think your best teachers are the ones that say, "I don't know, but let's figure it out together." Yeah, you know. And, you know and I, quite frankly, there's tons of stuff that that I get into with my apprentices. And I don't know the answers to begin with, but it's really an open exploration. You know, to ask them, well, let's dig into this and start asking the questions and see what they come up with. We see what I come up with. We kind of drill down to an answer. You know, we explored the sunflower. I didn't know jack about the sunflower until we dove into it, but I, I felt like it was a good place to start. You know, basically just kind of pulled out of a hat and said, well, this, this if a thing say this belongs in the East, let's see if it's true. And let's explore why, if you will. And it turned out to be excellent. And, you know, not every teacher, or not most teachers, not not every single teacher, sorry, I'm phrasing this badly, is not going to know everything. And they wait, they respond to a question, you know, sometimes they don't know. And that's valid and that's fair. Like, you can't expect the person you're learning from to be able to give you all of the answers. But I think 
they should be able to say to you, let me go out and maybe do some of my own research and tie that into the knowledge I have of the subject Mm -hmm. and then come back and have that conversation. There should never just be a because I said so moment. That's that's a red flag. (laughs) That's not a good and and maybe it's just a, a sign of being a bad teacher. Like there are people out there who are just literally bad teachers. Not everyone is meant to teach. And I don't mean this in the craft. I mean this, uh, you know, across everything. Across the board. Don't let them teach you how to drive. Probably <laughs> not going to be very good at teaching you math. I get it. It's it's It, it requires not a certain be a degree good of manager. Teaching is job. a skill. Yeah. Teaching is a skill. It requires patience. Um, it, it requires a number of things, really. So I, I get it. Yeah. And if you've never taught before, it's also a process in learning how to teach. And a lot of what you get when you go through a formal training in the craft, there is a path within that training teaching you how to teach because, you know, we generally don't expect new students to the craft to just know how to teach the craft. Like, it's one thing to learn the craft. That's great. But then how do you turn around and teach that craft to other people? Like they're two very separate skills. And I think people sometimes make the assumption of, oh, well, I know this stuff. So now I'm going to be able to easily turn around and teach it. That's not always the case. (laughs) No. Uh, And I find that particularly in the path, teaching shouldn't be necessarily about about trying to convey information to someone else. Or trying to to force somebody to to take what you've learned and consume it. Num num num. Uh, teaching should be about helping to lead a person to a point of inspiration, to a, an aha moment. If you're really teaching, it's not the movement of information from one person to another. It's it's the movement of an experience from one person to another. The ability to move another person into an experience that they can learn from because that's really where it's going to seed itself. You know, it's if, if a person has those aha moments and you're able to bring them to those aha moments without spoiling it, if you will, that that's where they're going to learn it. That's where it really shapes their personality and takes hold. And that takes skill. It takes patience. It takes knowing how to ask the right questions, not just having all the answers. And, and pulling it out of people rather than leading them down. But more importantly, though, I find that I learn more now as a teacher or as a mentor, as a guide, than I did as a student before. Like I needed before to prepare me for now. But there's a point where listening to somebody or having someone guide you through their experiences reaches a limit. And then I find that I gain inspiration to dig deeper by teaching others or by guiding others. And it's, it's almost as if it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. They come to me for that beginning information, and I need them to inspire questions that lead to the deeper. Well, when you start having to teach the information you know, you really have to ask yourself why. If you're going to adequately explain this to someone and give that explanation, you yourself have to have to understand it. Yeah. You know, it's it's the old, you know, to to really know something, you have to teach it because you really have to understand those connections and those associations and that history and be able to connect all the dots for someone who's trying to understand this thing for the very first time. 
and, see, and to try to communicate it in a way that simplifies it. Like if yeah. you can boil something down, you probably know it pretty well. And and your your most popular thinkers these days, right? Your your Ed, your Bill Nye's, your Neil deGrasse Tyson's, they take complex subjects and they can simplify them and they can visualize them and they can kind of help you visualize and they tell sort of a story that doesn't just interact with your ears, but it really engages, you know, the visual cortex of your mind, imagining what, what it is that they're conveying. They use their hands a lot. They're very animated. They're just, you know, excellent teachers. And these are the kinds of skills that I try to try to emulate and they struggle with sometimes. But but let's 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 reflect back capers. Come full circle. I, I think we have come full circle with the poor I, little caper, which I'm now caper. craving. I'm now craving capers. Thank you for I, that. Now I'm trying. Now I want to try them. I, you know, now I now I, I I want to at least order a little bottle and see what they're like because I feel like I've missed out on something. A friend of mine makes this really amazing Italian marinade with capers that you put on vegetables and like bake in the oven. And it's like the most delicious thing in the whole world. I will find that recipe and send it to you and maybe post it on our website for people. I also really like capers are in chicken piccata. That's a good way to get capers. They're delicious. They're nice little pops of salty deliciousness. (laughs) (laughs) See, I didn't know that. It's just such a trip. They're so good. Another thing that that if we can kind of flip back to the symbolism here, one of the things that I think is interesting is that I didn't know that it was an unblossomed flower bud. I had no idea until now. I just, again, I thought they were peppercorns that were just wet. But the fact that they are unblossomed pods of flower, I, you know, I think if you just holding that idea in mind, that your your flower blossom pod in and of itself is genitalia of the plant. And it has all of that potential for breeding with other flowers, right? And uh, this idea that you're capturing it in its almost immature state and consuming it, you know, when you're in your sort of quasi-immature teenage state, you know, the raging hormones, you know, the the makeout sessions behind the back of the school building, uh, these little things. I think wrap really nicely, even from just a social personal level into this idea that I'm eating an unblossomed flower. And, and now, now I'm just dying to go and get some capers. Now, now, now I've, I, I, I honestly believe that we can legitimately say, I don't know about potency. Maybe potency is just kind of that virility of youth, if you will, of that, of that unpopped flower but that you you're, this this capturing of that this bringing in and i think we can we can affirmatively say that the magical associations of of love and lust and potency could be associated with capers i think for the rest of my life my my lovers well, Damn, have better to bring blame you, you. Well, they're going to have to blame you for all of the caper dishes I serve them. That's that's. <laughs> and if someone magically appears with capers, I'm going to know. I'm just going to know that they are the one. They are the one. They're they're, they're the the ideal. <laughs> Bless. All right, let's wrap up this episode. 
This is Are this this this. Who am I again? It's late <laughs> in the day, right? This is your resident wizard, Reverend Wade, and I am your librarian and witch, Cassandra. We'll catch you on, catch you on the next episode. <laughs>